Hey, welcome to Trainable, the video podcast where we all engage in radical, honest conversations to simplify, socialize, and kickstart our well-being journey. Join me as I'll chat with experts from various fields from all around the world, together with mates and everyday people like you and me. Together, we'll unravel the challenges we face in our daily lives and extract those valuable, trainable insights, cutting through all that noise out there in the industry. Think of Trainable as your virtual dinner party where we break down the complexity without the need for a PhD and focus on taking those simple steps to become better than we were yesterday. We're all on our unique journeys and there's just so much to learn from each other. I can't wait to share these enlightening conversations with you. Welcome to Trainable. The episode we have today is with two amazing and inspiring people, uh, Rod Butters and Ash Butters. Um, people might know Rod from his president of the St Kilda Football Club, being one of the most recognised entrepreneurs uh, in the country, but also some of the the public challenges that he faced uh, through drugs and alcohol addiction. And today, his daughter, Ash, joins us as well, who's an inspiration in her own right. Uh, She runs an amazing podcast called Behind the Smile, is a yoga teacher, uh, and supports others going through similar journeys now as well. And the discussion, you know, knowing them both is deeply personal, um, radically honest, and something that is not just around alcohol and drug addiction, I think there's so many layers to today, including hope, hope that we can work through the challenges of our life and come out the other end and just witnessing the beautiful relationship that they have together. We do talk about alcohol and drugs today and suicide. So if that is something that is distressing for you, um, just warning people um, for this for this conversation. But also in the show notes, we'll definitely put in some helplines and other support uh, if you are finding it challenging and um, and need some personal support as well. So I think you know you'll enjoy today the discussion, the openness, and uh, I look forward to uh, chatting soon. Welcome, Rod and Ash. Thanks so much for joining today. I remember when I just launched the podcast, Rod, uh, you reached out to me, which was really lovely to say, you know, kind of congratulations. And then you said, you know what, you got to reach uh, and listen to Ash's podcast, oh. Behind the Smile. And I remember kind of getting onto your podcast, Ash, and then listening to it. And it just took me on this journey. And um, not only are you talented, the information in there, and I, we'll talk about it later, but it's just like a, an amazing podcast. Um, and it kind of, it, it got me thinking, and then I reached out to you both to be on here today. Yes. Um, I think what's really fascinating is the, you know, I, I actually feel nervous today because around capturing the essence of you both, and I think it's just such an important story. And a lot of people will kind of always think about, you know, the challenges and, and the rock bottom 
And I think there's a lot for us all to take away. Like if you're a young professional, you're a father, you're a daughter, you know, you're, you're on your path in all of this. And I think there's something for everybody. Yes. But the, the, what I also find out of it is this, this reclaiming joy and the essence of life and that kind of cycle for where you guys are at today and the inspiration that you're providing others. So oh, thank you. I, I, I just want to hopefully I can capture this today yeah, we'll for everyone, for everyone <laughs> yeah. for listening um, as well. But... Rod, I might I might start with you. You know, I being in being an AFL town, um, I knew of you, um, the profile. You know, you know, I was kind of looking at even just the the journey for yourself at twenty seven years of age. You know, with fifty k, you know, you build a business, yeah. you know, exited that for sixty million, then you build another <laughs> one. You know, five years later, yes, um, for eighty million, and then again. And then, you know, you, you know, you're at 40 years of age, you become the president of a football club, you know, mm. the St Kilda in Football Melbourne, Club yeah. in yeah. Melbourne, which yeah. is like such a, a big deal. And I, I just remember watching those days and, you know, you were a, a, a big personality in Melbourne through those times. And then- I did my best. You did your best <laughs> and you're still a big personality. Um, but then you look at, um, you know, you then you had very- public challenges as well that Indeed. was seen. And I, although we've kind of met on occasion through mutual friends, I never really knew the story until now. And yeah. I think one thing I'd less like to say is just how brave you are, mate, that you continue to talk about it. And I hope today if anyone's got us in their ears, they can really understand the journey that you've been on. But Thank you. can you just explain a little bit around that time, even just the emergence of you through that time and the just, I guess, the brevity of of such a, a big life that you were living then and what kind of led you down the path? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I I go back to my childhood and I'm one of 10 children and, uh, you know, Catholics, uh, middle class, but my mum, and I have six sisters and four of those are older, elder to me. So I grew up in a very strong a female-driven environment. My dad was a saint of a human being. He didn't drink. He, he was in, into community service, uh, et cetera. But my mother, for some reason, picked me out and told me I was a genius from the age of about three. And I always felt a little guilty that she wouldn't nominate the others. But she'd take me aside and say, there's something about you. You're a genius. And then she told me I was going to burn in hell. <laughs> so, okay, but, good mum. You know, I remember learning on the bar at St Kilda because I played there yes. badly as a seconds player and and I had a hair down my back and a beard down to my chest and some fellow came up and said, I think you can sell. You know, do you want a job as a salesman? Selling carbon paper up and down Collins Street in Melbourne. Now, most of your listeners won't know what carbon paper is, <laughs> but look it up. And uh, I was an introvert, yep. but I bought a suit and started knocking on doors and by the time I got to the other end of Collins Street, I was more of an extrovert. Yes. It's called experience, I suppose. And then one thing led to another and I was blessed. It was in the early days of technology and you didn't have to be that bright. You just had to be a, sort of have a go for an attitude. And I, I, I built businesses and it just happened. You know, my, my, my strategy for building businesses was very simple. Hire more salespeople than our competitors. Yep. And don't tell my wife, who was the CFO, <laughs> um, about the cost side of the business. Yeah. Um, it was a very successful strategy. And then I remember I sold my second business and um, uh, a former player, Grant Thomas, tapped me on the shoulder and he said, come on, Rocket, which is my name in yes. footy, 
Um, the Saints were struggling at that time. And look, we, the truth is, we've been struggling for 150 years. <laughs> yes. we, are the, we, yeah. we are the great Shakespearean tragedy of the <laughs> AFL. And so I met Andrew Plimpton, and I, I really warmed to Plimo. He was the previous president, yes. and he thought I was a bit of a rat bag, but, um, and I was. Um, but together, we sort of formed a really special bond and friendship. And anyway, I ended up taking over as prayers and spending the next seven years as prayers. And we, we, we really, went out on an edge and we took risks and we, we I think we built a list that was the envy of the AFL. Absolutely. I don't take credit for that. Brian Waldron built that list. Yes. Um, and then it all came crashing down. And I had made the fatal mistake of allowing that status and title to become my identity. I wasn't Rod Butter's father. I wasn't Rod Butter's neighbour. I was Rod Butter's president. Look at me. Look at me. And when that was stripped away from me, um, it was quite traumatic, indeed significantly traumatic. So my answer to that was to increase my drinking and my drugging, yep. uh, which numbed the pain for a period. And then I ended up uh, about the same time uh, falling in love with a gorgeous young lady and we got married at a wedding that was just ridiculous. They rang me at 8 o'clock in the morning uh, from the wedding venue in Sydney. What was it, Ash? The, the Ivy. The Ivy. Yeah. And I was in the penthouse and they said, could you please come down and pay the, pay the booze bill? Yeah. And I said, look, I've just got to bed. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. And I come on, I'm off, I'm off my head. Yeah. And they said, could you please come down and pay the bill? It's $100,000. That's a big night. That was a big night. And, um, and then four months later, Susie, who was a good human being, and I thought I loved her, but I didn't know what love was. I had no idea what love was. She basically told me to rack off. And so I jumped on a yacht and sailed around Asia for a few months, vowing never to come back ever yeah. again. What do they call that, Ash? Geographical. Geographical. That would be a geographical, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was yeah. back three months later. The Saints made the granny, so I had to come yes. back. <laughs> but what it taught me was the problem was between my ears. Yep. The problem wasn't in Skiller Footy Club. It wasn't my upbringing, not really. It wasn't, you know, it was between my ears. But what about, so if you go back, you know, because you, everything leads you to that. And I think so many people can relate. I can relate to identity. Um, we even had a, uh, the podcast last week with, with, with Chris and Moff were talking yeah. about identity as well. Where did it start? You know, like, you know, when you, when you kind of have, you know, I'm really fascinated around because addiction's a word that people use, they throw around, it's kind of loose, but it all starts somewhere. And it kind of, I, I imagine like there's a lot of people coming home and saying, oh, look, you know, I've had a wine, I had two wines. No one knows. Oh, when did you know, A, it was a problem, but also where did it start and did it kind of gradually grow or did you just go, you know, I know it's, very, start it's with? very much a progressive disease. It really is. And it started. Uh, and I might share the picture with you, uh, when I was 11 years of age and I was the altar boy at yeah. my sister's wedding, my older sister's wedding, and I was angelic. I was dressed in a red cape with a white thing and white gloves and there's a picture of me at home like this with my arms crossed and that. I was totally angelic. <laughs> and three hours later I was chundering my guts out. Yeah. And so um, I was an introvert, I was a shy kid, and when I discovered alcohol it lit me up. Okay. It gave me the capacity, the capability to talk to people, to be funny, for my true personality to come out. Yep. But then, you know, I drank probably relatively responsibly. Yes. Until um, 
probably 25. And, and, and at age 25, interestingly enough, also my friends were using heavy drugs. Yes. But I was playing footy. So I really couldn't turn up to football training off my head. I turned up once stoned, which didn't help. But beyond that, I, 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 was, I had a, a goal or an yes. objective, uh, which was football. I wanted to play AFL. Um, but by about the time I got to 25, the culture in Melbourne back then was get up, go to work, do a few hours work, grab a client, go to lunch, yeah. have way too much to drink and then go to other places that I'm not going to mention in front of my daughter, yeah. uh, even though I'm sure she's worked it out. <laughs> um, and, and, but it just became more and more progressive and because I was successful, yes. that gave me the ability to rationalise my behaviour as being appropriate. And people accepting it around you, right? Because well, everyone else is probably doing it at the same well, time. Well, we tend to birds of a feather stick together, so yeah. we, we, we don't knock around with angels. Yeah. Um, so that progressed from then till age 40. And because I kept having this ridiculous success, it was almost permission to yeah. continue to behave. And the truth is that age 40, I had no idea how to be a parent. Yeah. Even though I'd had good role models. And I think such is the overpowering nature of addiction, it rules your life and we can justify anything. So all manner of behaviour can be justified, even though we're horrified by it. 24 hours later, we're doing it again. So it's very progressive. And, And in my case, it took me losing the Saints gig and losing the love of what I thought was the love of my life, Susie, who went on to become a real housewife of Melbourne, mind you, so we're probably a bit different, um, uh, to, 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 to get to the point where I stood on a balcony and I thought, I've just got to end this. I can't, I can't keep going. What was the thought, though, that, you know, because you it was amazing because obviously we've had some chats before today and the, the feeling of guilt, right? Guilt, what, shame and remorse. And is that – so when you – that is, I mean – Absolute rock bottom. Oh, totally. Like when you're staring at the abyss like that, you've you, you've hit a level that I think people listening may be able to relate to, but few may get to that point. What do you? You're what cooked. drives you to that actual moment? Alcohol and drugs. What, what's the thought though? Like, oh, okay. Thought? I think you get to the point where you're so thoroughly broken. Yes. Psychologically, spiritually. Um, in every facet of your being that and 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 that being that you could look back at historically who had achieved some good things and done so it's not all about good and bad right and wrong no. there are so many shades of gray in addiction because i could have been a good neighbor i was a good neighbor at yeah. times you know i coached Juddy and yeah. the juniors at the yes. footy and the cricket and all that. But the, the alcoholism slowly just takes over to a point of domination and that leads you to insanity. Yeah. And it is absolute insanity because we do things that horrify us and we do it again and again and again. It's because it goes against, I guess, some of your core morals and values. Thoroughly. Yeah. Thoroughly. And then, yeah, I can imagine that. And we lose control over ourselves. We're yeah. doing things that horrify us. We can't believe we're doing it. We're yeah. doing it again. And so I got to the point where I stood on the balcony and I met, I'll never get a can of VB in one hand and a fag in the other. That's a cigarette, yeah. uh, mind you. And, um, and I thought, come on, you weak bastard, let's jump. 
come on, let's jump. And that was 2010. That was 2010. And my beautiful daughter, Ashley. Sorry. sorry. Oh, mate, it's all right. Geez, I'm getting emotional listening to this, mate. My beautiful daughter, Ashley, and her brother, Campbell. <sighs> you know, they flashed into my sort of vision and yeah. I thought I can't. I just can't. So I went back inside and I sat down. I cried myself to sleep. I woke up the next day. I vowed never to drink again. And I was pissed by flipping five o'clock the next day. So I was very blessed, however, that that in my social circle there was a fellow that was a bit different. Yep. His name was Mark and he'd actually managed an international superstar, a fellow that had sold 100 million albums. Okay. In England, and Mark ended up a cocaine addict, and, and and Mark was in our social circle, but he was a bit different. He didn't drink, he didn't duck off to the loo. There was something magnetic about him, and so I rang Mark and I said, "Mark, I'm in a bit of trouble, mate. Um, can we catch up?" He, I'll never forget. He said, "Rod, I've been waiting for this call for years," and he told me his story, and his story led me to identify with the key elements of addiction. So I could finally accept, okay, I get it. And and after him explaining his story and me identifying, it was a case of what now? Right, I might I might ask Ash, mate, Please. thank you for sharing. God, I'll tell you what, I feel like we all need a group hug right at the moment. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, Actually, you know what I noticed, even just when you know we caught up the three of us, is that you know the relationship with your dad. Mm. Do you know, and and it's the the and I don't want to word the irony of where kind of life where where you found life as well. But before you know, we get through your journey, I'd be really interested because I think as a father as well, and and this is why I see so brave you guys coming on today because I just hope people are listening to this today and just thinking, okay, and just and just reflecting on our own lives in any way that could be possible around how we show up. Mm. What was it like growing up in the household at that time? Because I know you still said, I confided in my dad, I had a great relationship, but what was it like growing up in a house like that? Yeah, look, the first thing that I've come to realise is that all of the learning and the knowledge that I have is in hindsight. And it's really interesting. We'll get more into it, I'm sure, later. But when I got to rehab and they asked me to go through the process of doing a timeline where I had to look at my, from the age of zero to 17 and mark out any periods within my life that I identified as being traumatic, I remember looking at my therapist and saying, no, but I had a perfect childhood. (laughs) So I was completely disconnected to the chaos. That was my normal. So at the time, had you asked me what it was like, I would have said it it was an amazing childhood, particularly because you know, I, I we grew up, once dad sold those businesses, we went from renting a really small house where I had pet spiders, <laughs> uh, you know, down down on the, um, in, in the Bayside area to moving to this big, beautiful house in Brighton. And, you know, my brother and I, we wanted for nothing. I fell into music and I was able to play every musical instrument under the sun. There was so much support. We had food on the table. Mm. So I really didn't think I even had any permission or any right to identify as having anything but a perfect childhood. And I remember that moment when I actually started to talk about 
what went on in the household, the particulars. And it was explained to me by this therapist that what I had experienced was multiple traumas Mm. throughout my childhood, that I was given permission to actually look at this stuff. And that's really where the healing happened because on one hand, I very much believe that my parents did the absolute best that they could do with the tools they had at the time. I'm also allowed to say that it wasn't good enough. Mm. And I think what a lot of people do these days is they almost try to bypass. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And, and in doing so, you you just kind of dance over the issue. Whereas one thing that Dad and I have been able to do because we're both in recovery is we just have the, the most raw, honest conversations and that's where we've been able to get to the place we are today. But to answer your question, what was it like growing up? I now see that it was quite unhealthy. And as a result, I developed maladaptive coping mechanisms. So I'll give you an instance. There was never necessarily, when I say I grew up in an alcoholic home, my parents liked to drink a lot together. They would have parties that we would have friends over, but that wasn't really so much the issue. There was never any violence, physical violence, but there was a lot of arguing and a lot of raging. And more than that, it was often the day after when I, the parent, would be hung over and I would have to walk on eggshells because I didn't want to do or say anything to elicit a reaction from either parent that would cause them to get angry or be disappointed. Um, both of my parents were quite harsh when it came to um, disciplining my brother and I. And what that really meant was once I started to get a little bit older and I was playing up, I became really good at hiding all of those sorts of things sure. because I think, you know, I now realize it was out of fear that they were so harsh, harsh when they came to disciplining us. Uh, but at the time that taught me to be really good at uh, manipulating and deceiving because I wanted to be able to get away with doing those things like drinking at an early age and whatnot. But from a very young age, what I learned to do was detach myself and become who you needed me to be for everything to be okay. Mm. So even though I'm the youngest, my brother's older, I very much took it upon myself to be the peacekeeper within the family. And I had great relationships with each of my family members. And, you know, to this day, it's always just been my, my, my dream is just to have us all together and for there to be this beautiful unit. And we do that pretty well now these days, which is great. Even though mum and dad aren't aren't married anymore. (laughs) But I had that deep desire from a really young age and I lost my own identity in doing that. I became a chameleon and I I kind of lost who the real Ash was in all of that. And this inner critic, this voice that was in my head telling me that I wasn't good enough, telling me that I was unlovable, that just started to get louder and louder and louder. I also had a very gifted brother. He was um, very sporty. Our household was very sporty and I was not. And so again, how that played out was I would watch my brother go and play, you know, if it was winter, it was footy. If it was summer, it was cricket. And dad was heavily involved in the clubs, either, either or. Mm. And I used to get really jealous of the attention and the adoration that my brother would receive. And that was when I first started to develop an unhealthy relationship with food because my parents Mm. would give me $5 to go to the canteen and while they were on the boundary line watching the game, I would just be stuffing myself with food. So that was the first sort of connection I had to any form of addiction or taking a substance that would change the way I felt. And then when I was 12 years old, 
I took my first drink and that's when we were at a big Christmas party. That was, oh, my God, it was this was by the time, you know, Dad had just sort of started at the club. So it was quite a, <laughs> an interesting time. a very high-profile, yes. like everyone who was everyone that was there. The Minogue sisters, all yeah, of them, like, you know. Yeah. And, and I had worked out that if you walked through the front of this house, they would give you a cocktail. Yeah. And so I kept going through the front and then around the back and through the front and around the back. <laughs> like, the, God, she looks familiar. Yeah. I know, right? I thought I'd really figured out the system. Yeah. However, and what I loved was the feeling that it gave me, similar to what Dad's said. Uh, for me, it wasn't so much about being lit up from the inside. It was about those voices quietening down for the first time. And I found that peace and that serenity that I think I'd been searching for my entire life. And so if one did that, two would surely do more of that. Uh, and that's kind of been my approach to drinking throughout my entire drinking career. But of course, I ended up with my head in the toilet bowl that evening. I remember my parents being so angry. Yeah. I think they were probably more embarrassed than anything else. Yeah, I remember being shocked when I got a tap on the shoulder <laughs> from the host of the party um, and then I went into fear more than anything because mm. it's like, what? How come? Well, what was really interesting in that moment was I remember we were sitting in the back of the taxi and I was, you know, st went straight into lying. I was trying to convince them that I hadn't drunk anything <laughs> and that just <laughs> enraged them even more. But I ended up getting grounded. And yes. I think it was maybe a month at that for that particular incident. And like I said earlier, that didn't teach me to not drink again. It taught me to get smarter in the About way that how. I drank. Yeah, it's fascinating. And so unfortunately growing up there wasn't, even though we were able to come together and I had a particularly close relationship with Dad, we, we're, we're two peas in a pod. We've got very similar personalities and we, we have that drawing together. I would be very creative in what I shared uh, and I would only really share the good stuff uh, and then the stuff that was really troubling me or, you know, th this rebellious tendency, this streak that I had, um, I would really hide all of that. And, you know, you were, by the time you started at the club, out most nights. So oh, that yeah. became easier and easier and to hide. And the thing I think upon reflection and something you just said really lit up for me and that is that there... There is function within dysfunction. Yes. Mm. You yes. know, there are coping mechanisms. Nothing is ever rarely in the human sense so dysfunctional. Yeah. There's, there's always some function within the dysfunction and that's what I'm hearing, that you've found ways to function whilst being dysfunctional. And I think that's very common in society. It is. And I think when, we, when I was listening to that, as well, Ash, is it's as much as we're talking about alcohol, drugs, addiction, these things, say, I think every parent can relate to this. It's, you know, there's so many ways that, you know, we've got to reflect as a parent is how we're kind of showing up in those moments, but also as a child kind of growing up, the behaviours that we're kind of learning uh, around that as well. So I think when, when I'm listening to them, I'm just thinking it's just, I think anyone listening so that can probably have some empathy around it. Mm. What when you then then as you kind of moved on, you had your first experience there, and I can just think of so many parents just listening at the moment, just going, "Okay, oh geez, you know yeah. what I mean?" <laughs> their, their hearts in their mouth at the moment around this because, you know, I, I, every parent is dealing with this, yes. right? One way or the other. One way or yeah. another. It's just it is. So, 
Where did it go to from there? Mm. Well, it was really interesting because I had two very different personalities because, as I mentioned, I was quite detached from whoever the real Ash was. And so I had these two extremes because I was a perfectionist and I was constantly seeking external validation. How that showed up in my school life was that I was highly academic. I was a prefect. I was music captain, you know, ticking all the boxes Mm. Gold star, yes, please. And then I would be going out on the weekends. You know, I I had tried speed by the time I was fourteen. I was you didn't smoking tell me that. that regularly. <laughs> Cocaine came into the picture around seventeen, eighteen, and so I was going out on a Friday night, sometimes a Thursday, and not really slowing down until a Sunday. Yes. Mm. But I've always had the ability. You'll hear it often referred to as being high functioning. Yes. I could always show up in other areas of my life. So in a way that was detrimental to me because it meant that the the drinking and the drugging and my tolerance continued to grow. But from the outside looking in, nothing to see here. Can I ask a question as a dad? Hmm. Is that, you know, on one stage, you know, you're we're talking about not trying to be a chameleon, hide things, right? Mm. So you want to have an open relationship. This is this is probably more therapy for me at the moment. Sure. Uh, and and but then, on the other hand, you know when you know when do you when do you step in? And and Rod, you're obviously dealing with stuff that yourself, and I think every parent is dealing with stuff, mind you, at that stage as well. We're busy, you know, we're distracted. We've got all these coming on. We're trying to do the best that we can. I think that's the key. How if you if you reflect back on then and 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 inject mm. what a parent should be trying to do at that stage, mm. do they do they confront or do they talk about it or what so, do you do? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily use the word confront. I would say sit down and have a conversation. Yeah, I think looking back, the beauty of hindsight is that had there been an environment where it felt safe for me to share what was really going on and to be really honest with what I was trying how much I was drinking, then I would have done it because I actually did want to be able to have that relationship Mm. with my parents, but there was a huge amount of fear, particularly for my mum and around drugs. She's she's never really taken a drug in her life and she grew up in an era where a lot of people were dying from heroin and and Mm. so she just assumes that if you take drugs you're going to die. So there was never really the opportunity Mm. for me to – really even talk about what was going on there. I have another theory. Yes. And I've since checked this against a lot of the girls that I grew up with. Those of us that had a family system where both parents or whoever the caregivers are, they didn't necessarily have to have a mum and a dad, but whoever the primary caregivers were, if they made the effort to sit down and have dinner on a regular basis, Mm. they seemed to stay on track. Wow. And those of us that didn't. So then yeah. it's almost like the 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 weekly rhythm and cadence yeah. around all of that, yeah. the check-in. Yeah, the check-in and just having that quality time to be able to talk about what's going on. And sometimes had Dad approached me at a young age and said, we need to talk, like straight away I'm going to clam up, I'm going to mm. be fearful, what reprimand am I going to experience? It didn't feel safe, whereas if we had had regular moments where we were just sitting, engaging in conversation, 
maybe I would have felt a little more safe to open up. I remember when I was about 14, this is another example of how sort of twisted we were with our communication at the time, I had quite disordered eating and and I was not eating a lot at all and I was purging. And rather than mum and dad sitting down talking to me about it because they could clearly see what was going on, I remember it was a Sunday night and there was a 60 Minutes episode on eating disorders. And so this is when we were living in Park Street. I got dragged down to the main living room, forced to watch it. And <laughs> That's then what we, I'd do. And then, yeah. we, didn't, and then <laughs> we didn't talk about it again. Yeah. Oh, so I honestly tools, didn't know you had right? an eating disorder. Mm. I didn't know. Mm. But what something hit, just hit me between the eyes listening to this conversation, and that is this, and uh, you know, let me share. Yes. A hundred years ago, You'd start your family at sort of 20, 21, 22. I started mine at 25. Um, That's young. It's young. Yeah. But the world is so much more complicated today than it was 100 years ago. In what way do you think, mate? Well, distractions. Yeah. Like television, like social media. Like like Uber Eats. Like like the the cultural acceptance in Australia particularly of part particularly of partying etc like that you know i i remember growing up as a kid in a in a dry household we sat around the dinner table yes we had a meal we talked about you know social topics uh, and then as, then 12 of us would move into the living room and watch television together yes then say our prayers together so what's just sort of hit me between the eyes is is this new wave of affluence, this new way of uh, a myriad of choices, et cetera, has, le- has led somewhat to the dysfunctional piece in the family unit. It's a know. great observation, mate. It really is. I- I'm told, because I was born in 59, but I'm told in the 40s and the 50s, you'd have your dinner, then you'd stand around the piano and have a little sing song <laughs> before exactly. going to bed. And probably your grandparents would be there as well. Pretty, and there'd be a wider family unit. Pretty simple. Yeah. You know, pretty basic and very effective. So so whilst I was a, far, a parent at 25, I know I didn't grow up until 50. So I was a very, very uh, emotionally immature parent. But because I could provide the physical things, the school fees, the mm. cars, the houses, the except the holidays, et cetera, I got a tick and I got validation. How did you, Robin, you kind of, um, well, I haven't finished with you, Ash, by the way, but this, <laughs> when you were kind of working through, you know, that moment, you know, where you're contemplating suicide in 2010. Yeah. The next steps from there, you've you've reached out and you've found a mentor through yes. those times. That's day one, isn't it? Because the hard work begins at that stage, right? Because it's, you know, just coming to terms with it. So how hard is it just continually? Like is every day just a new day and you've got to start again? Like how do you actually- In recovery. In recovery. How does that- um, I think you build a cadence because I have I now have a community. Yes. I how have, long has it been now? Uh, 14 years. Yeah. Sorry, 13 years. I have a community and I have a community that I do not need to explain anything to. I don't need to explain my challenges with addiction, drugs and alcohol, gambling and sex. I don't need to explain it. They get it. Yes. They've, 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 they've been down that same path. So we get it. And then, and then, and then we, we provide a safe environment where people can check in and update and talk about what's going on and tools that enable us to remain present and in the moment. 
Um, is the opposite, I think you said somewhere, it could have been you, Ash, as well, is like the opposite to addiction's connection. Correct. Johan Hari. Yeah, yeah. correct. Mm, Absolutely. That. Yes. So I, I encourage everybody, whether you've never had a drink in your life or you don't binge on sugar or, you know, <laughs> If you're perfect, don't worry about it, but I've not yet met too many <laughs> perfect met too many people. Of those. Go to an AA meeting. Yes. Sit in that meeting. It, it You'll be blown away by the peer support, the empathy, the compassion. There's a hard edge to it too. Yeah. There's, you know, we've got bullshit radars. Um, so if we hear the bullshit, we'll call it out. But we, someone walked next to me at my darkest hour. And they gave me hope. Yeah. And they gave me tools. And and I am forever grateful. And then it's my turn to share that now with the next mm. person uh, who need who may need that help. And so I was just blessed to have been born in a time in the era where we have the 12 steps. Yes. We have community groups. We have all of the the things we need. Once we put our hand up and say, I'm in trouble, help, people come and help. I think the first 12 months is the hardest. And if you can make it through that first 12 months, because you're doing everything for the first time. Sure. You know, I, I remember thinking to myself, how am I going to celebrate a birthday without alcohol? Yeah, 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 how yeah. am I going to go to my first wedding without alcohol? Yeah. And the other thing that you're learning to do is to, we say, live life on life's terms which means that when things happen that cause discomfort, grief, pain, life, whatever it is, you know, your old habit or behaviour is to reach for a drink to help numb and soothe, you don't have that option. So you have to learn to, to sit with self and to actually allow the emotion to move through you. But it's like anything, once you start to build the muscle, yeah. it becomes easier. Imagine. So it's really just a matter of, I believe, you know, I'm I'm coming up to four years and I've been warned that around the five-year mark there's a thing called a second surrender. <laughs> so I'm, I have to profess yeah. that in a year's time I might be saying something different. No. But my experience has been that it definitely gets easier the more time you have up and the longer you stick around. Speaking about time then, Ash, and I've been interested to you as, as well, mate, is that you got so much more time on your hands, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so you, I imagine, so like is part of the challenge how you feel that time? 100%. And how, big's, how big's routine to try and, you know, try and create some cadence in life around these things? Yeah, absolutely. I can speak to routine for sure. I have a morning routine and it was something that I was encouraged to develop in early sobriety and it's something that I really, really stick to because it sets me up for my day. The, the idea is if you're an alcoholic, as we both identify, mm. is that you're never cured, but you do find recovery and it's a daily reprieve. So mm. it's something that we need to maintain. And every morning I wake up, I wake up as an alcoholic. So what are the things that I'm going to thinking. do? Exactly right. Yeah. Alcoholic thinking, which, yeah. is, which is the isms. It's the restless, irritable discontent. Sure. That baseline discomfort. How am I going to soothe that? without alcohol and drugs. So getting up in the morning and making time for me, meditation has become a huge part of my life. And that really sets me up for the day because it allows me to start to create a little bit of space 
in my mind, you know, if this disease centers in my mind, that's mm. where I need to do the work. And so I start with that meditation and it just allows me to slow down, to connect inward, which is something that I spent the first 30 years of my life trying to avoid yes. any sort of connection with self. It was too painful. Now I really crave it. And then I pray because for me, that's become a big part of my daily routine. In Who that do you pray to? For me, it's my higher power. Can and you describe that? Yeah, I can. So it, for me, it's an energy. Mm -hmm. It's a universal energy. Gotcha. It's, it's everywhere. It's in you. Yes. It's in me. And I'll, I'll describe what I mean by that. In the past, people used to say that throwaway line, trust your gut. Yes. And I used to think to, I would nod along pretending <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, I know what you mean, thinking how the hell do you trust your gut? I was, I was so disconnected from anything that was going on inside me. And then all of a sudden you remove alcohol, you remove the things that you use to numb out, and all of a sudden this channel just starts to crack open. Yeah. And through the process of prayer and meditation, I've been able to widen that channel yes. to, to the point where I am now today where I can tap into my gut straight away. But that is my higher power speaking back to me. So when I pray, I'm praying to my higher power. And when I meditate, I get the answers. And, and we're, we're talking about intuition. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing when you get sober um, that one of the things that's quite noticeable Yes. is that this intuition mm. awakens. Is it, it because you've been distracting yourself from that You've been so numbing long? it. Numbing it. For yeah. so long. We, we all do that in, in different ways. In different ways. Social yeah. media. Yeah, whatever it know, is. Food. Yep. Um, binge watching television, arguing, road rage, you know, so yeah. many distractions. But when we nurture that area of our body, and they call it the second brain, yeah. it just wakes up. Mm. And some of the things it tells you is really quite remarkable mm. from a very positive perspective in my experience. Well, yeah, that's where you get to actually get to know who you are. Like from my own experience, I live a completely different life today from the life I was Unrecognizable. living. Unrecognisable. <laughs> exactly right. Because I had no, who I, no idea who I was. I was sharing recently on a podcast episode that at the age of 35, I've just worked out what my favourite colour is. Now, I know that sounds really strange, but I, I used to just always go, oh, it's pink because I'm a girl and girls are meant to like the colour pink. It's not, you what know. It? It's what blue. It? Blue. <laughs> blue. There you go. It's my favourite colour. <laughs> it seems so silly. <laughs> it seems so silly, but it's it's th that to me blows my mind that as a 35-year-old I didn't even know like that, that kind of preference. Mm. And, and that has come out in it changed my, my relationship, where I lived, the work that I do, all of that has changed because over the space of the last few years, I have just allowed myself to form a deeper connection with the person that I actually am. So, again, that comes from, but going back to your point on morning routine, it all starts with that, actually creating the time and the space in your day to work out, even just to create stillness. Yes. And then whether you're going to then, move your body, exercise, journal. Well, it's a bit like buying a membership to a gym and never going. Mm. Yes. I mean, you're not going to build muscle. Yeah. But if you get given a bunch of tools and we just use them on a daily basis, then you will grow. I wonder like, you know, when you when you know people listening and I've been through that through COVID as well, even, you know, and, and it's, I guess it's when it doesn't serve you, right? There's different moments like when do you go, hey, I'm, this is too much or this is actually having a, an effect on my life. And mm. I imagine, you know, when I'm thinking about filling in time, like a lot of people just bookend the day, 
they get into a bottle of wine, they might go into the second and it's like, well, what am I going to do to fill that as well? Because that is just becomes almost the routine mm. there as well. So you guys have to be just so conscious, I guess, of that. Well, what we encourage people to do and try it tonight yes. is anyone that's ever run a business or had a, bu- or had a business does an inventory of stock. Yes. Uh-huh. Because yeah. if we've got old stock, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's gathering dust on the shelf. So what we encourage ourselves to do is an inventory of our day. Yes. And unfortunately, we see so many people on the treadmill of life mm. just justifying their habits, their behaviours, their perspectives there, et cetera, that we actually have a practice where we pause and we do an inventory of our day. Was Do I owe anyone an apology? It's a great thing for everybody. Did I behave as the human being that I want to be, the neighbour, the father, the husband, the et cetera? And if I didn't, um, maybe I needed to, 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 you know, make amends for that. that. Yeah. And I think it's easy in this day and age to be just caught on the treadmill of life mm. and keep justifying the the stuff we do because we're just not really engaged. Or you know. thinking that, you know, you'll get to it tomorrow and the reality is tomorrow never comes. That's yeah. so true, isn't it? Yeah, we keep punting it down the line. Ash, like, you know, you, you've been on such a journey so, you know, you think around um, going through childhood and then just things started to escalate yeah. from there, right? Yeah, look, I remember getting to oh, the age of 17 and I moved out of home. It was quite chaotic at that time because mum and dad were separating for the second time. Uh, the first time was the year prior mm-hmm. uh, and they conveniently did that while I was going through VCA, which was awesome. <laughs> Perfect timing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Twice. Um, and so I remember just having this absolute burning desire to want to get out of the house. As I mentioned, I had quite a rebellious streak. I was dating a guy that was smoking a lot of weed and I moved into his house and that enabled me to start drinking and using every day. And within about a year, I had to make a phone call to my dad because I'd gotten myself into a lot of trouble. I remember that phone call. Yeah, it's what funny. What were you thinking you know, then, Rod? What was like on the other end of that call? I just wanted to protect my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Just protection, as you would appreciate. Oh, okay, I can make yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so I can get specific around what was happening. I'd actually stopped drinking alcohol because I was using cocaine daily. Yeah. And back then you couldn't get drug tested, so I thought I'd bucked the system because I was able to still get myself around, drive, mm. get on with my life, um, but I was, I was using cocaine every day. And as we know, it's an incredibly expensive drug and I had gotten myself into a very sticky situation where I'd actually taken – drugs from a dealer and I then owed him a lot of money. And I went to the cash converters on Chapel Street and I remember I sold my saxophone and my guitar and I still didn't come close to the amount of money that I needed. And that's when, you know, at that time I had two options. The thoughts that were going through my head was I can head to Gray Street or I can call dad. Oh, my God. Oh, jeez. And I, I made the decision to call dad in a lot of fear, actually more about what was what my mum was going to say because remembering that deep fear she has around drugs. And I was really blessed that my parents actually, as Dad said, like I remember Dad was really, really angry 
at the dealer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but was wanting to. Protect, I knew him. Yeah. Was wanting to protect me. And our response at the time was actually really interesting because no one in my family knew anything about recovery, about no. NA or AA. And so. Or addiction. Or addiction. Yeah. And so dad decided, well, mum and dad. Uh, decided to take me to a health farm. Dad actually flew me up there and we spent a week together, Mm. which was great for detox, Mm. but there was absolutely no education around Mm. addiction, the why, what was going on, what I was trying to mask. And so after a week of daily colonics Mm. and isotonics. We were clean. We (laughs) were clean, but I came home and I was drinking and using that night. Oh, jeez. That was the first kind of wake-up call. Did you feel like when you you kind of go back and feel like you're regressing, does that even build, I imagine, more guilt in or or is it just like what story are you telling yourself when Mm, that happens? No, I honestly at the time I actually just thought my parents were overreacting and I thought I just need to get smarter and make sure that I don't steal drugs from the dealer again. You know, I sort of went, oh, you took it a bit far there. But there was no consideration as to you are an addict, you are an alcoholic, you need to stop. And so once again, I I then actually fell into a relationship with somebody who was incredibly healthy. He had beautiful parents. He had a beautiful family. And for the period of time that we were together, which was about four years, I really immersed myself in that world. I went back to uni, I got my degree, and I, life was starting to get on track again. And then I remember that baseline, restless, irritable discontentedness started to bubble and fester again. And it was almost like there was this voice in my head that was telling me to blow up my life. Like I just, I needed excitement. I needed drama. Ash, can you just talk a little bit more about what we call restless, irritable and discontent? Because I imagine a non-alcoholic yes. would be, what the hell are you talking you're just, about? You're just sabotaging yourself. What are you talking yeah, about, yeah. restless, irritable and discontent? Yeah. Like- so the, for me, it's the base state. Yeah, it's it's the best way I can describe it is like there's a hole in your soul. There's this sense of not being com- nothing works. It's just almost like a sense of not feeling complete. Yeah, and needing something like I mean, people that aren't alcoholics may not resonate with this, but that feeling that you get when you pour that first drink, you crack that beer, mm. and you have that drink, and you go. <sighs> Yes. That's what you're trying it's to do. It's a bit cover. like a, an adrenaline junkie. Yes. Not being able to get the adrenaline. So if 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 the adrenaline junkie was a skydiver, yes. you're not skydiving ever again. It's like, no, no, hang on, that's what I do. That's where I get my zest for life yes. from. Well, we have a basic state called restless, irritable, and we just can't sit still. It's just we need something in our system to quieten it down. And it's typically a drink, yes. a drug, a bet. Some sex, or or some other things, and and so it's important for non-alcoholic listeners. I often say to people, trying to explain the mind of an alcoholic is like trying to explain the colours of the rainbow to a blind person. Yeah, I can it's imagine. It's very difficult. Yep, yeah. mm. that's a really great way of explaining it because it's you know, you, you know you everyone's got the is it the cortisol levels or these but then. If that's a natural state, yes, because you can imagine, like that first drink or that first drugs or whatever distraction or whatever takes the edge, mm. yes. takes the edge off, and I imagine tolerance mm. 
starts to grow throughout that time as well. Does that is that does it does that happen or? Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting. So even though my drinking and my drugging slowed down for that period of time, my tolerance really didn't. And so when that relationship ended, I went straight back into partying, and it was really heavy and it was really hard. It got to the point where I had all but burnt my life down in Melbourne. I remember feeling like I couldn't walk down the main streets in the suburb that I'd grown up in because I had this tail between my legs right. and I, the, my behaviour yeah. had been really unacceptable and I'd hurt people. I'd hurt people that I loved, including my ex-boyfriend. So I did a geographical yes. and in 2014 I picked up my life and I moved to Sydney and that was quite a defining chapter because what happened there was I could hide my drinking and using like never before. I'd also sold the home that I had owned in Melbourne and so I had cash and it was just a dangerous combination. I was also going through heartbreak and that first year that I was there, I, yeah, it was out of control Mm. but I was still showing up for work was calling in sick quite a lot. But, you know, again, people couldn't really tell what was yeah. going on. At the end of that year, I ended up meeting the man that I would later marry. We drank and used together a lot. There was a lot of codependency and trauma bonding in all of that. And so it just continued to escalate, but I was still keeping a lid on things. You know, the reason my podcast is called Behind the Smile is because I used my smile like a shield of armor. And as long as I was smiling, if you asked me how I was, it was always fantastic. Everything's great. But the reality was I I, I was dying on the inside. Mm. And it really all came to a head in 2018. Um, It was two weeks before my wedding day. And I was actually down in Melbourne at the time at a friend's wedding with my fiance. And we got a phone call to share with us that his brother had taken his own life. Mm. And I remember in that moment, it was like everything slowed down. It was like I just remember thinking in that moment that life was never going to be the same. And you were very close to him. We were, in, yeah, he lived yeah. with us and, and he'd, he'd. But take, you were buddies. Yeah, he was yeah. one of my very dear friends and, you know, he'd taken his own life in our apartment. It was a shock. It was a complete oh, shock. I can only imagine. And my fiancé had only just lost his father five years prior to that, so there was still a lot of grief that he was coming to terms with. And I remember in that moment just thinking, I can't deal with any more. I, I knew that I was going to have to not only process this for myself but also my partner. And that's, Who you were marrying two weeks later. Yeah, and that's when I, I really turned to alcohol as a source of, of comfort and almost like a medicine. Yeah, I started. It. Yeah, I was self-medicating with alcohol and that's really where alcoholism took off for me and it turned into, you know, it was the day we found out we flew straight back to Sydney and then seven days later we had the funeral. Mm. So in between those seven days I was drinking every single day. Dad flew up with his partner to be with us. So we were surrounded by family and then seven days after that we got married. Mm. And so we, we drank all Jesus the way up to that day, you know, and it was really surreal, wasn't it? You know, there was, oh, it, it, was, was just, it was clear that the best man the, wasn't The emotional there. range of pain and trauma and confusion mm, heavy. And, and madness and, oh, it was just. And so much to deal with at your age then too, Ash. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a, 
I mean, it's, you know, we've all got stuff we're going through, but that is a lot for yeah. anybody, regardless of what you're going through. Yeah, yeah, it was. And I do feel really sad, you know, for that version of myself that experienced that and also for my ex-husband. Sadly, our marriage didn't survive that. You know, mm. I, I very much leaned into alcohol. He leaned into his drug of choice. And over the next two years, we just started to grow apart. But in all of that, I have this sense of gratitude for the journey because it got me to that point at the beginning of 2020 where I hit my own personal rock bottom. It's funny because often as alcoholics, and I'll speak for myself, I would blame everyone around me. Yes. It was that person, it was that place, it was that thing that made me drink that way. If I hadn't yeah. have had that argument with you, I wouldn't have drunk that extra bottle. Mm. And so I really honed in on my partner's smoking of weed as the reason why I drank every day because I felt so disconnected in the relationship and all the rest of it. And I remember at the beginning of 2020, our relationship was on its tender hooks and he decided to go to India to try and work on himself to come back to, to repair the relationship. And I remember thinking to myself, this is fantastic because you're the problem and once you leave, I'll be okay. You know, I've, yes. I, I don't have a problem. Mm. And he left and within five days I'd hit my rock bottom. And it wasn't a night like any other night. You know, this particular night I was down in Melbourne. I'd been travelling for work and I decided to stay the weekend. And I remember saying to my mum, I was staying with her at the time, I'm just going out for one drink. And I often share this story, Ryan. Yes. If you had hooked me on a lie detector test as yeah. I was walking out the door, <laughs> I would have passed yeah. because that was truly my yeah, intention was yeah. to go out for one drink. I walked in the door at 8 o'clock the next morning. Five to eight. I'd had a lot more than just a couple of drinks. And I remember the look on my mum's face as she sat at the kitchen table and I just fell to my knees. What was the look like? Oh, it was just. Well, if you could describe that. She was broken. Yeah. There was, it was a complete, she'd lost all hope in Helpless. that moment. Yeah. It okay. was just like, I, I'm watching my as daughter parent, die. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. She didn't know that, what was she going to do? And um, it was in that moment that I realised I was the problem. Mm. I couldn't blame it's anyone else. It's amazing it was that moment. You know, mm. you think about all the different things that happen. I know. And it's kind of, it's, 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 it becomes this intrinsic moment, doesn't it? And it could be any time. Yes. It could be any time. And that's why I always share, you know, it wasn't necessarily, I didn't drink or take any more drugs than I normally would have on any given other night. And had that night been in Sydney yeah, sure. and I hadn't had You're that the, yeah. mirror yep, the yep. next morning, I probably would. Maybe and I happened thinking. to be walking into an AA meeting in St Kilda on Saturday morning, that same Saturday morning at five minutes to eight, and the phone rang and it was Ash. And she said, Dad, I'm ready. Oh, mate. So I whizzed around there and um, and she was ready. How hard was it you at she that time, ready. mate? Because you kind of – because you've been through it and and, you know – the emotion of a dad, but also the ability to have experienced similar. How how was it you watching all of this unfold? Look, it, it's extremely difficult for a parent to watch their children disintegrate. But as we say, if you carry the addict, they will die in your arms. Yeah. So we made sure we used language and set an example, but not an overbearing example. Just just an example so that Ashley could identify that 
at the right time in her life, there could be a, an opportunity, a sliding doors moment. And you'll be there. And, and, and well, yet yeah, we will be there, yes. but the, the entire recovery community and system would be there. And so it was just ironic for me that I was walking into a meeting oh. at 8 o'clock and she said, Daddy, I'm ready. And when Ashley calls me Daddy, I know she's yeah. serious. <laughs> and so I whizzed around to the, you know, we sat out the back and we chatted Chain with smoked. Mum. <laughs> yeah. And she checked herself into rehab and she has not looked back. She's mm. dived into the middle of the recovery movement and it's beyond my, you know, I can't describe to you the the sense of joy, the sense of pride, the sense of um, it's okay. Yeah. We go to a lot of funerals, Ryan. Yes. We see a lot of people die and whether it's from being hit by a car or choking on their own vomit or Overdosing or or, or suicide, uh, we see a lot of of of, of death. Um, so when your daughter, um, and I know my daughter extremely well, when she says, "Daddy, I'm ready," it was extraordinary. It's funny because I just it's it's just sitting here. It's like an out of body experience at the moment because I, I look at you both. Um, I put myself in your. As a See, father. Right, as a father. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I look at you in the story and, like, if, if I didn't know the story as well, Ash or Rod, I would, you just never know, like, behind the smile. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? And, mm. and you look at where you guys are now providing such inspiration to others and I am I'm without doubt someone's listening at the moment and uh, if they're not wiping tears from their eyes as they're walking down, whatever they're doing in the morning or whatever, then, you know, I'll, I'll be surprised. But when you think about life now, right, and, and, and maybe, Rod, you know, you're not the president of the St Kilda Football Club anymore, Thank the entrepreneur. God. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 you, you're still the entrepreneur. But how do you, how do you find out who Rod is through oh, that? And, and what's that process go through because you know you've always been yeah look that's a, that's a lifelong journey and i think i've been blessed uh, that i i was curious always have been very very curious so once i got sober i was able to allow that curiosity to 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 explore that curiosity in terms of who 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 the hell's rod yes who the hell's rod and what's your journey and, you know, and I think I'm a little bit quirky if you read my book when it comes out. You'll I'm looking forward to that one, to that. <laughs> uh, my daughter's uh, uh, um, told me I'm not allowed to read the opening paragraph on this podcast, which I'll respect. Um, but, but I think getting back to the point is that, you know, you start to realise there's something extraordinary about humankind, about mankind, about the universe, about civilization, yes. about right and wrong and shades of grey and what's my purpose, why am I here, is karma real, how can I help? Yes. How can I help someone? And one of the great things about recovery is we get to help someone without spruiking off about it too much, you know, without, yeah. without sort of holding up, but look at me, sure. look at me. Just and it doesn't need to be another person who's unwell in in terms of trying to get into recovery, but just a neighbour or become a decent human being. Yes, you know, one you're actually quite proud of. Yes, and and I think that's something that um, 
as I was growing up, you know, uh, the measure of my success was the size of the car, uh, so, pardon me, the size of the house, the number of cars, the number of mistresses, et cetera, et cetera, all bullshit. Yes. You realise at age yeah. whatever. Now it's having the awareness to stop and help someone for a second or two or to work with a youngster, a younger fellow, a younger person coming into recovery by being on the end of end of a, a phone and having a 10, 20-minute conversation. That's the joy in life. Do you feel like you've had to go through this, mate, to lead to a point in life where, you know, you're, you're of service now, right? And is that where genuine purpose become, comes from? Oh, thoroughly. I yeah. mean, thoroughly. The joy you get in helping someone, mm. and it doesn't have to be about recovery. No. The joy you get in helping someone is is the opposite of the joy you get from having drugs and alcohol. Yes. But it it your chest bursts with with self-esteem. Yes. I, I suppose, as opposed to the old ego opposite. Yes. And so we just get to live this um, magnificent life, being of service, but without becoming a saint or a, or Correct. a Buddha. You know, <laughs> we can actually just still be an entrepreneur and we can yes. still be ourselves, but we're not doing damage. Yeah, when you come into recovery, for most people, you're pretty broken. And for me, myself, my I had no self-esteem, you know, incredibly high ego, made everything look okay on the outside, but my self-esteem was all but shattered. And one of the reasons that is, is because every single day for two years straight, I broke a promise to myself. Mm. And then all of a sudden Can I- you explain that, Ash? What do you mean you broke your promise? Yeah. Every single morning I would wake up with a violent hangover and I would promise myself that I wasn't going to drink again that day. Yeah. And sure enough, after the ibuprofen had kicked in, I'd stomached some coffee and maybe a bite to eat, all of a sudden- this would start to go, my head. Yeah. yeah. And by lunchtime I was telling myself maybe just one. And then on the way home I'd be swinging past the bottle shop getting that one bottle. That would be finished by 6, 7 o'clock and then I'd be, you know, and I, I had to drink to blackout by the end. It was oh, the only wow. way I could stop. Oh, and so every single day I was breaking that promise to myself. And then the really cool thing about getting sober is that the opposite is true. Every single day I keep a promise to myself and that building of self-esteem coupled with being of service, helping other people for fun and for free, like you just get to create this beautiful life mm. where you actually, you know, I look at myself in the mirror and I love and respect the woman that looks back. Yeah. I look at you. Sorry, good go, Rod. No, I was just going to say because in my life I've employed a lot of salespeople, as you yes. appreciate, and I loathed myself to such a degree I was on acute lookout for anyone that presented anything like me. I wouldn't have hired them in a fit. You know, such is the, yeah. the the sort of discord that's going on. It's just crazy. But we live it every day and we repeat it every day and we justify it every day and tomorrow's going to be different. No, it's insanity. And it's not just alcohol that does that, mate. Oh, no, that's yeah. right. Yeah, well, yeah. no, that, yeah. that, that's right. I mean, don't worry, I want to do a PhD on road rage. It's yes. got me fascinated. <laughs> it's got me fascinated how yeah. you can be driving down the road, <laughs> someone takes 2.5 metres of space yeah. and you're quite content and calm listening to the radio yeah. and a second later you want to kill them. We're all monkeys in the, what yeah, the there, in one way yeah, or another, aren't we? We've still got there? our primal kind of. Yeah. You know, and then I look now then, Ash, and, 
and I say this with all sincerity, like like I've, I listen to your podcasts and although I don't identify as have, having addiction, it means I learned something because of behaviour in so many other areas and your life now is just all around of service from, um, you know, your podcast, but you've also got so much other areas of your life that's really your third thing, right? Yeah. The, the other things that you're doing now, can you just kind of share share that because it's amazing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like we said earlier, like my life could not look more different now yeah. from, from where I was, you know, um, a little under four years ago. And it's all been through the discovery of who I am and actually finding like what my path of purpose really is when everything is removed, when all the bells and whistles are gone. And I realized, you know, working in a corporate job, I was a national sales manager, I was flying around the world, New York, Paris, London, 2019, all of that stuff. Uh, And then I got sober and all of a sudden I remember walking into a sales meeting one day and, you know, Paris was on the phone, you know, and I just thought to myself, no, this can't be it. What was that moment like? Why? Because it didn't fill my heart with joy. Yes. I had no connection to the purpose. You know, I I just thought to myself, we're selling lipsticks. And look, (laughs) there is a place for that. And and, and I was in the beauty industry for 15 years. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of power in in being able to help men and women um, in that industry, but I knew that it was no longer setting my heart on fire, and I had a calling to do something different. And so, having had a background in journalism, I thought to myself, podcast would probably yeah. be a good thing to to start. And really, that was born out of the desire to change the conversation yes. because when I was struggling in my own journey. You know, I had my dad who I could talk to, but I didn't really have any females that looked like me that were in a corporate job that were talking about this kind of stuff Mm. because of the stigma, because the stigma is rife. Even though we're getting better, there's still a long way to go, particularly, which is why I'm so open about identifying as an alcoholic. Yes. Because for me, if I can use the word, use the label and show you that it looks it can come in different shapes and sizes, mm. then we're chipping away at that stigma. And there is a solution. And there is a solution. So that's where Behind There's the hope. Smile was There's born. Hope. There yeah. is, absolutely. To really remove the stigma, not only around addiction, but uh, but mental health and yes. trauma yes. as well yes. and normalising these conversations. So I started with my own story and then I started interviewing other people, as you know. I've had some incredible experts on talking about topics because, of course, it's not actually ever about the alcohol. <laughs> no. it, it very rarely <laughs> is, you know, the codependency, so love addiction, all those sorts of topics that anybody can relate to. And through doing this work, I have developed other arms and other experiences. And I retrained as a yoga teacher and a meditation teacher. And now I've developed a holistic model that I use with my own clients who I work with either in a container, a group container or one-on-one capacity, helping them to be able to step off the hamster wheel and to step into their purpose. You know, what are the things that we use on a day-to-day basis that allow us to check out from reality or disconnect from self? Mm. It doesn't have to be alcohol. Mm. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's your Mm. partner. You know, we're all doing something. I catch myself even today. I do. I now use work as a distraction sure. a lot of the time. Hey, there'd be 
hundreds of people yeah. listening to that right? going, exactly. And you can rationalise. I was literally sure. writing my email out to my community before I got here and I spoke on this. I can rationalise and justify. I work for myself. You know, I'm hardworking. I'm, I'm in growth phase, whatever I can do. But at the end of the day, if I'm having a feeling that I don't want to process and then I walk into my office and sit in front of my laptop, uh-uh, yeah. like I'm regressing. Yes. So becoming aware of these sorts of things and through the process of developing the spiritual side of my life, being in recovery, doing the work, you know, like actually looking at my own stuff and doing the work. I've been able to create this holistic model where I work with people now on a mind, body, spirit approach. So it's not just one thing because for me personally, I was in therapy for years and there was stuff that just still wasn't shifting. You know, I'd I'd talked it to death. Mm. (laughs) I needed to be able to feel it because a lot of our trauma is, of course, stored in the body. I do listen, Ash, and you talk about head to heart. Yes. That's it. Yeah, exactly right. And we all kind of work in our head and I think even as entrepreneurs, like we spend so much time, that's why I've got a a face like a hammerhead shark. I grind my teeth at (laughs) night and all these different problems. They're kind of churning through, but it's, that's not where it gets solved. Yes, it's a long exactly journey. Right. It's a long journey yeah. through long that journey. and head to heart. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of the people that I work with, you know, they haven't necessarily hit a rock bottom. And that's another yeah. message that I'd love to share with anyone listening today. you have today. to hit rock bottom? You do not have yeah. to hit rock bottom. Yes. It's all about what is your tolerance for discomfort? You know, for me, when I was drinking and taking drugs recreationally, I had a really high tolerance for discomfort. You know, I could crash and bash and, you know, I'd just keep drinking and i just keep masking the feelings. But when you remove all of that stuff and you learn to sit with self, you want more of that and life gets more co- I almost describe it as like seeing the world in colour. You go from seeing the world in black and white mm. to colour. And that's, I think, the beauty of life when we can step into a life that we have designed that has meaning and purpose, that's really the nectar, right? That's what we're all, I think, looking to do. Yet we get caught up in what society tells us we need to be happy, whether that is the job, the relationship, the children, the The cars. The partner, the address, the car, the holiday, the the credit card. It's endless. Yeah, if you had told me at 21 that at 35 I would not be married, that I would not have children and that I would not own my own home, I would have said, take me now, it's over, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And I can honestly tell you, hand on heart, that I am the most, not even happy, content. Yes. I am the most content I have ever been in my life and it just keeps getting better. Yeah, exactly. You've done the work, Ash. Done the work. You've Mm. done the work, you know, it's inspirational. It it just, it is. And I think so many people are going to relate to that, right? And I think there's so many people with, with hope, you know, like, you know, there is these dark moments where I imagine people just feel like they just can't get through that next stage. And I think it's a really good point around you don't have to hit rock bottom. So if you, if if people are, are feeling this way, I guess, can you start sharing what's the tools and what do people do? So someone's listening at the moment and they're going, you know what, I, I can identify with this. It may not be alcohol. It may not be alcohol. Mm. It could be anything or it could be alcohol. What, what, yeah, or, or I'm, I, I'm identifying with a level of discontentment Correct. in my life. I think the hardest thing is to get honest with oneself mm. and yes. to take a step back and really do that inventory. You yes. know, how am I? Am I the human being that that genuinely I want to be? Am I the partner I genuinely want to be? Am I the workmate? Am I the neighbour? Am I the all of those things that I genuinely want to be. And unfortunately, 
Um, people are in, often in so much of a hurry that we go, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm, 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 yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, it's, it's all good. Um, but, you know, if you can actually t- step back, I often say people take more effort keeping their iPhone functional yeah. <laughs> than they do keeping their so mind functional. If they get a crack in their iPhone, they're off yes. to fix it. But if they get a crack in their thinking, mm. they can justify it. Yes. So it's 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 personal care rather than Apple care, eh? Yeah. <laughs> it's like weeding a garden. Yes. You know, if I weed it once, the the weeds will grow back slowly and I may not yes. even notice them. But I've just got to have that. If I want the the best tomatoes to grow over the, in the veggie patch, I've, I've got to look after my mm. garden and mm. the, or, or it's buying the gym membership and and then not going to the gym and then complaining that I haven't got the physique I want. It's it's having that something to take a little bit of a step back and just do a bit of an inventory. And if you're blessed enough to have a good friend you trust in yes. your life, mm. say, hey, mate, can you just tell me, how do you reckon I'm going as a human being? And it's quite remarkable because we're just creatures of habit. It's such, it's such sage advice and I'm really conscious of your time as well, guys. But I guess... You know, as we're kind of thinking through, you know, we, we're kind of working through, again, people at home thinking and listening. Mm. One of the questions I'd love to ask is that first day that you walk into a meeting, you know, and, you know, that feeling, I imagine people are apprehensive and thinking, oh, you know, maybe it's not me, I'm okay, and it's just the people here are nothing like me or whatever. Can you just share what that feels like? And so if people are listening, they can that might be apprehensive, yeah. what's that like? I think for everyone it's quite different. Yes. Mm. And I think for me um, I was so fried. Yes. I was so cooked. I was so buggered that I remember walking into the meeting, a couple of observations. One, I said to my friend taking me, uh, do you think there'll be any media there? And he said, uh, get over yourself. <laughs> One. Two, I saw what we call the 12 steps and the yes. 12 traditions of the program and I was so fried. I wanted to wrap myself in in those sheets. And the third thing is I walked in knowing I was an alcoholic and I walked out an hour later knowing I was an alcoholic, a sex addict, a drug addict and a gambling addict and I had a lot of work to do, Yeah, you know. Mm. So they're my takes. What mm. about you, Ash? So interestingly, when I went to rehab and I was taken to a 12-step meeting, that wasn't my first time. Uh, in the decade before getting sober, there were maybe half a dozen times that I had really blown up my life and I'd called my dad and he had taken me to a meeting. But I can honestly say that I must have been sitting there with cotton wool in my ears because sure. I did not hear the message, the message that I know today. It didn't yeah. connect with me at the time and I just simply wasn't ready. And that's why I think it's really important that people need to be ready yeah, that's a great you, point. You can't force it down their throat. Yeah. It it won't work. There has to be a level of willingness. Totally. You know, to surrender and to to take the You can't drag steps. anyone into recovery. No. Yeah, no, that's definitely so not. Whereas 2020, when I went through via the rehab, I was ready. Yes. And I remember from the very first meeting I went to, I identified as an alcoholic and you know, it gave me such a sense of relief because I thought, "Oh, thank goodness, now there's a solution." You know, yes. there were people in that room that were happy. Yes. You know, and it was the first time I'd seen alcoholics happy and 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 successful and women and all of this stuff that I didn't realize even existed. To answer your other question, Ryan, what can people do yes. at the very beginning? Something yep. that's tangible. 
is meditation. And it's a really interesting thing that I talk to a lot of people about because meditation really seriously is the greatest act of self-care that you can possibly take. Because Without meditation, we're constantly just living up here. Mm. Let's just unpack that because people sometimes at home, and I know that even oh, I meditate daily, but at the start it's like I've got to levitate. You know, yes. I've got to, yeah. you know, yes. you know, you know all these different areas. Like, but it, People but, assume that they need to sit in the lotus correct. position for 45 yeah, minutes yeah. in complete So explain silence. to me when you talk meditation, yeah. what does that mean? So let me describe it as mindfulness. Yes. Because that can be a lot more palatable for people. So one way that you can practice mindfulness at the beginning of the day is when you wake up in the morning and you step into the shower, I just suggest that you close your eyes and just become aware Mm. of the feeling of the water droplets as they hit your skin. Be aware of the sensation as it runs down your arm, as it leaves your body and travels down into the drain. Do that for 30 seconds Mm. to a minute. Yes. And you've just meditated. Yeah. yeah. That's the entry level. And then I always like to share as well, guided meditations are such a fantastic tool because what a guided meditation will help you do is to train the monkey mind. So if you notice that your mind is starting to wander, which it will do, that Mm. is the natural nature of the mind, rather than getting frustrated with yourself, be proud of yourself that you've noticed your mind wander and then you've brought it back. And you can do that a hundred times in a 10-minute meditation if you have to. You're still mm. meditating. That's yes. not, you know, you don't meditate good or bad. It's simply the act of meditation. Mm. So guided meditations are fantastic. And I've got free guided meditations on well, my we'll website. We'll put them into the yeah. show notes as well mm. so people can get on. Please that. feel free to. Yeah. There's plenty of fantastic apps out there as well that are free. So definitely finding, but what it really does at the end of the day is it helps you as dad mentioned before practice the pause yes that beautiful space between a response and a reaction and that is where the gold is amen absolutely that's where that is that is everything you know road rage yeah and (laughs) i'd I'd like to share a little meditation i can't remember whether i read about it or i developed it but i'm going to show you something which is a bit awkward so i have to explain what i'm showing you for the listeners i've just lit in a flame from a lighter you got that derek yeah, <laughs> that flame is a representation of your mind, our minds. That flame can cook your food and warm your home. That very same flame can burn your house down. Yes. That is the nature of our minds. Yes. So if before you make a phone call, before you get into a lift, before you sit on the toilet seat, before you're standing in the queue to get your coffee, close your eyes, take a big deep breath in through your nose and for those, um, maybe just Google third eye chakra. Yes. Right? Have the sensation that that breath coming through your nose is going through that third eye chakra. Breathe into 80%, pause, another 20% release. It takes six seconds. Yes. And it, I find it just keeps me, it just keeps that noisy thing, you know. No, I understand. Quiet. Yes. And if we can... You know, it's the 45-minute lotus position is a bit much, yep. you know. Haven't quite got there yet. It's a bit, it's a bit <laughs> tough, but something like that mindful awareness type of meditation that takes literally a few seconds, 30 seconds in the shower or five seconds as you're going up the lift to your office or whatever, is just helpful to keep it calm and quiet. Such, and a, it's such great advice. Right? It helps me, you know. It is. Now... As we draw to an end of this conversation, um, I'll, I'll summarise in a moment, but Ash, t- 
to find out more about you, what you do, all the amazing stuff, it'll be in the show notes as well. Can you just kind of share with everybody where they can hear more of you? Absolutely. So there's a couple of different places you can head to. You can head to my website, which is ashbutters.com. Of course, the podcast Behind the Smile is available. Highly recommended. All great pods. Thank you so much. And you can also hit me up on Instagram. My DMs are always open. So feel free to reach out to me there at ashbutters. Oh, so good. And Rod, what about yourself? Just, just in summary, what are you doing now, mate? What are you actually focusing on? I'm working on a uh, little project that is quite crazy that is uh, going to hopefully change the world because there's a uh, disease that's destroying forestry and agriculture, crops, land, wildlife, and we've just filed a patent for a cure. Fantastic. So um, it's crazy, but it helps to be crazy, and um, we've got some pretty, you know, serious heavy hitters saying, tell me more. And I love it when people say, tell me more. (laughs) So uh, you remember the Irish potato famine, or you don't remember it because you're not old enough, but you would have read about it. Yes. That was a fungal disease called Phytophthora. There you go. And uh, we've just filed a patent for a cure. So apart from my recruitment business and my professional services stuff in the consulting and the IT space, um, we've got a a little baby called Fixed that's – going to hopefully change the world. And I think that it's, you know, people know you and raise it. You're an extraordinary entrepreneur. You know what I mean? And we talked a lot today about um, the journey, which deeply thankful for you being so honest and brave today, Rod, with it. Absolute pleasure. But also, mate, you're an extraordinary person who've achieved extraordinary things, right? And life's a journey, right? Totally. And then sharing today and, and just seeing both daughter, and dad, but entities in your own rights, but then almost coming back at this beautiful moment together. It, it is, it's, 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 I mean, if I've got the relationship that I have with your daughter, with my daughters, uh, as they go on, I'll be, that's a big tick for me. So I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for coming in today, Absolute sharing pleasure. your story. I know people will be um, listening and uh, listening now and just going, oh, my God, like it's – I think it's had a real impact and hopefully it's helped people today as well. So thanks so much for coming on. No, thank thanks you. So much, thanks so Thanks for the opportunity. It's been great. Good on and you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Oh.